This contract is about more than just economic gains for auto workers. It's a turning point in the class war that's been raging in this country for the past 40 years. For too long, it's been one-sided and working class people have been left behind. That's why this contract is more than just a contract. It's a call to action to workers everywhere to organize and fight for a better life. The auto workers at Ford just won a major battle in the fight for a better world. Billionaires aren't going to save the American dream. Working class people are saving the American dream. The UAW is saving the American dream. And we are doing it together. Thank you and good night. So that was the United Auto Workers Union's president, Sean Fain, honestly saying the quiet part out loud about why we over here on the left wing have been so excited about the labor movement that's been ongoing that we've discussed many, many times on this show. And that's that these concepts of class unity, of class warfare, they're now suddenly being talked about in the mainstream due to the efforts of these labor unions. And honestly, Sean Fain has been spearheading that. Like, I don't think I've heard a union president use the term class war, but that's what's going on. And that's what he's fighting for. And we're going to be covering what the union won against the big three automakers today. But I wanted to preface it by saying this is not the end. Sean Fain has come out and said, we're going to do this again in 2028, except it's not going to be the big three. We're going to be striking against as many auto workers as possible because they're going to spend the next several years trying to unionize Toyota, trying to unionize Tesla, trying to unionize as many auto manufacturers as they can. And I very much believe they will do it because they were amazingly successful in this deal that they just negotiated. Now, as of this recording, it hasn't been ratified by the membership yet. But from what I'm hearing, that that seems a little bit like a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, so by the time you're watching this, you know, th this is probably going to be settled. But, you know, to, to summarize what they won, they won massive double di digit wage increases, um, upwards of 30 percent over the lifetime of the contract average across all members. And that doesn't sound like a massive amount because the people at the top are actually dragging that average down. The main thrust of these wage increases were for the people at the bottom, the part-time workers, the temp workers that these uh, companies were taking advantage of. They're seeing pay increases up upwards of 150%. They ensured that temp workers who, were, who could only spend so many months as a temporary part-time worker before they were required to be made full-time. And even maybe the most pivotally, were the COLA adjustments that they got put back into uh, the contracts, which when we covered it last time, we explained this in detail, but essentially they're cost of living adjustments, COLA, where if inflation goes up, a certain percentage of your pay also increases. Um, so I, I, when I read that originally, when we were, when we were originally introducing the story, when they went on strike, I was like, Damn, I've never had that in my entire adult working life. Um, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And the efforts of the UAW and other unions like it to make this mainstream is going to trickle down to, to the rest of the country, essentially. We already saw that Toyota, despite being a non-union labor, non-union house where the membership isn't organized under a union, 
they had to increase their wages in response to this because a rising tide lifts all boats. And even the non-union workers are seeing a wage increase because of the efforts of this union, which really just shows the power of collective bargaining. Natalie, I, I see I see a nod in your head here. What, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, labor rights are just, whoo, I get really worked up because I was part of a union at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette um, for several years. They're currently on strike. They've been on strike for a year now. And while I was there, um, I left under duress and ended up speaking out on behalf of other members at the union because of the terrible treatment of the workers. So when I hear the success stories that are coming out of many unions across the country, and this one is so major and it's so important what's happening here, um, it really gives me hope. And I hope it provides a space for people to feel courageous that they too can say, I'm not doing this and walk away. I left a very stable position um, because of how I was being treated. And, and while the union had my back at the time, you know, the management was so terrible and it continues to be so terrible to everyone working there. You really did feel like you were just sinking. And I don't think people understand how hard it is to organize people to this level, to get them to stand together, because there's actually a lot of Stockholm syndrome that goes on inside these spaces where people start to identify with management, even though management is hurting them and is taking you know, food out of their mouths. And so when you can get enough people to say, no, we're going to stand up and we're going to stand together and we're going to stand our ground, it is incredible to me to see what can happen. And I, I have such hope that the people at the Post-Gazette in my own backyard here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, will recognize um, the power and that solidarity and use this as momentum to keep them moving forward um, because we all deserve a living wage. We all deserve the right not just to survive, but to thrive, right? And at the end of the day, it's the workers that make the machine run and we deserve to live with dignity. And that can only happen when we're being treated fairly. So to me, at the end of the day, class trumps all the other cards and we've got to come across all these different lines, these arbitrary lines that have been created for us to create division and recognize our power collectively. Yeah, one of the points that I was really excited about that I saw they had organized for was including protections to workers as electric vehicles start to replace gasoline models. Because um, a lot of the times, this is something that you see in the climate world too, where obviously we're going to need to transition away from fossil fuels, but, but that means that a ton of people are going to lose their jobs. A lot of communities are going to be, um, are going to lose like companies that are, that are mining there. And these people can't necessarily just like go work for a solar company or like become, I don't know, a wind turbine engineer. Um, so I, I really appreciated that that was something that they had thought about um, and trying to protect people who work at like, who, who make components for combustion engines. I, I was just going to say, CJ, I completely, completely mm -hmm. agree with that. And that's going to be a major part of all, you know, industries, technology moving forward. We're going to be moving at a pace where anyone working in a technological industry is going to need job training and the ability to step away from the job in order to continue being in that profession or we're just going to have massive spots of society left behind. So I'm really glad you brought that up because it's a, it isn't being talked about much, but it's a major part of this contract. Yeah, absolutely. And also the one thing that I've been really encouraged by is the fact that this isn't just happening in one place. 
right? Like, you know, we can talk about the tenacity of the, the UAW strike and, and that particular labor president who went after and got these deals, first getting Ford to cave and then GM and Chrysler feeling the pressure and then following suit. But this is also coming right after a massive win for UPS drivers, which we all saw how that played out. This is coming off the backs of what we're seeing, just a domino effect with so many stores and Starbucks unionizing. We've seen how Amazon won, you know, like was able to like win a union for themselves like about a year ago. Uh, Chipotle, major airlines, Kaiser Permanente, like so many places around the country are kind of just having this domino effect right now. And in a, in a news cycle that's constantly dominated by just negativity, it's really been heartening to see positive, something this positive going on right now where people are essentially realizing their worth and also realizing that if the system was going to step up and do the right thing and protect workers and give them a raise and so on, so it would have done so by now. And it hasn't, and it was never going to. And so truthfully, unions is honestly the best way forward. It's been the one thing through the last couple of years that's given me hope, like looking at the landscape of everything going on in the country right now, because we're going to get into this a little bit later in the week, but the Biden administration has been overall a joke as far as I'm concerned. But when elected leaders can't step up to protect the people, I'm glad the people can protect the people. And that's been the story that I've seen across the board with so many of these labor disputes right now. And as you were saying earlier, John, when it comes to uh, what that president said about how he wanted to come back, you know, in 2028 and go after like the not just the big three, but the big five or the big six, also talking about a possible general strike. I I'm so happy to see people finally like coming together and showing off their collective power because it's what we should have been doing all along. So, Desmond, I have a question, because wasn't Biden the first sitting president to ever be on a picket line? Is that enough, Natalie? I mean, it, it feels, I, I, you know, no, I'm, I'm just I'm just, I'm just saying. Curious. <laughs> I'm just right, curious like, because, because I'm so with you. Like, I think Biden, there's a lot to be desired there for sure. But right. I do think that was significant to have the president of the United States standing with this union. I think that is a big deal and it should at least be acknowledged. We don't have to like or agree with a lot of his policy but that is fascinating to me that that was the first time that it happened i didn't realize that yeah no president had ever done that that felt significant to me it's significant that that's all it takes to get a positive headline you know i i, I feel a little bit differently about it i yeah. i think that it, it feels very performative on his part because in the 1990s that would have been a massive deal because mm -hmm. you know any small headline like that can really kind of jazz people up and say look at that person fighting for us but in this day and age where we all have access to the internet in our pockets mm -hmm. at all times, the access of information is so abundant that we know the difference between something that's kind of just like a performative statement versus something that's real. And, and to be fair, to be 100% fair, the there's things that have been happening with the National Labor uh, Relations Board right now that is mm -hmm. happening underneath his watch that I do think are, are substantial. The fact that they are putting protections in the NLRB that will make it easier for workers to go on strike and not have to feel any kind of like pushback from their employers. That's real. And that I will definitely give him credit for. But actually standing on a picket line, I, I think the time of small gestures needs to be way behind us. We're way past that. It's kind of like with the climate issues, like yeah. the mm -hmm. micro like uh, gestures of good faith are it's too late for all that. We need major things. And we need them right now. So Desmond, I'm going to agree and disagree with you here. I think that it is, I think him standing on the picket line was a performative stunt, you know? Yeah. Um, and I agree with Natalie that 
even if it was a performative stunt, it's significant that it's the first time in American history where that's happening. And where I think the conflict here is coming is that you you feel like it's not genuine. You feel like Joe Biden isn't genuinely pro-labor. And I generally agree with that. I think he's more pro-labor than some other people, you know, probably than even a lot of Democrats. You know, I, I, don't, I think there are many people who would have uh, who are, you know, competing in 2020 uh, not 2020 or yeah, 2020, 2016 that wouldn't have done that. But I think that the more important headline here is that he was pushed to do that, that wow. the efforts of you know, union leaders, of organized organizers, of us, uh, you know, and people like us going online talking about labor issues has changed the entire climate of America. Like the, the economic climate, of, of course, is, is mainly driving that. But I think we're seeing the same thing with Israel and Palestine that we're seeing with the labor movement is a certain group of people in power got so comfortable and so absurdly overconfident that their propaganda is going to work that they actually had the opposite of the intended effect. They went so far that they forced people to start talking about it and start looking into these things. And now we have the the largest one of the largest unions in the country, the president of it, calling for an open class war. And the president of the United States joining a picket line. That happens because we're all talking about it now. Because and so, yeah, I don't think it's genuinely in his heart of hearts that he he, he wanted to be on that picket line. I don't think any, you know, octogenarian wants to be on a picket line. But I I do think that it's a lot of things politicians do are performative and because the people want it. And the fact that the politicians are recognizing that the people want it is a big deal in and of itself. Um, CJ, I, where do you stand on the, you know, how, how pro-labor do you think Biden is and is it good enough? Yeah, I mean, compared to other presidents, I see the argument that he, this is like more significant, but also I'm like, how hard is it to be more pro-labor than like Ronald Reagan? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like the bar is already so Hen low. Henry Ford was more pro-labor than Ronald Reagan. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I agree with what you guys are saying, that I don't have a lot of faith that this is something that he actually supports, but I do think it is significant that he even like made that attempt. Because um, I think it is very powerful for groups like this to say that they have um, this like legitimizing person on their side. I, I'd like to add to that too. I was looking down because I, I was thinking about, I was pulling up on my phone because I wanted to get the right name of it, but John Fetterman, who's a Senator here in Pennsylvania, in terms of like talking about the labor movement, he just introduced a new bill just a couple weeks ago called the Food Service Strikers Act of 2023 um, that allows striking workers to qualify for SNAP benefits. And I just think this is so major too. And I think this is the domino effect that can come from performance, right? Because then politicians are not leaders, they're followers. And they they have to follow, in my opinion, what their constituents are asking for. And the more pressure that we put on them, I think the more performance can turn into action. And to me, the idea that you could go on strike and then qualify for SNAP benefits so you can still feed your family while you're on the picket line and the government is in support of that, that feels very progressive and very major to me. And I would just love to get your thoughts on, on what you think that's going on here in Pennsylvania with that. Cause that could then tumble into a federal bill. Who knows? 
Well, well, if you want my that, thoughts you, on whether or not striking workers should get a should get benefits. <laughs> I mean, no. but this is this is what I'm saying. These things have never been discscussed like this before. Oh, oh no, we're, we're laughing because we just discussed them like a and it, oh it no, was, I'm it, so it, sorry. It, it, <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, no. to the last video. <laughs> I know. I should, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> our 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 regular our regular uh, listeners and 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 uh, subscribers will. Uh, We'll know wow. what we're talking about there, but we we had a yeah. heated debate on, on on the topic a couple of weeks ago on the show. Yes. I don't expect anyone to watch all the episodes. I don't watch all the episodes even. I think it Desmond is, is the only one. Maybe I was just some. like osmosis <laughs> was just there with you mentally. No, <laughs> can you give us can you give us the TLDR of the debate that you guys had? Yeah. Uh, the, the the debate that we had was essentially over. It wasn't like snap benefits. It was uh, when Gavin Newsom in California. Um, you know, talking about Pennsylvania and California and we have Pennsylvanians and Californians on this show what a coincidence um yeah. but but uh we we're talking he the the they passed a bill um in in California and sent it to Gavin Newsom's desk which would allow striking workers to uh, apply for unemployment benefits uh and Gavin Newsom vetoed it yeah. um and we we were talking about that and the argument being made against it was that you know the taxpayer that going on strike is a choice and the taxpayer shouldn't uh, pay for someone's choice that they're making, and that and that and that was to uh, you know g- give it as much good faith as as possible. Um, the argument that was being made against it. Now, myself and I believe everyone here would probably agree that it's a way of collectively supporting each other. Um, you know, it, it, it's just a way to use the system to our advantage in negotiating in a system which is already stacked against us in every way possible. Um, and if that's what the people of California want to do with, with their tax money, that's a very valid thing to do. Um, certainly more valid than half the things our government does with the, with our tax money. Um, and, and that was kind of the argument I was making. But that's that's the TLDR of that issue. One other thing uh, that I wanted to note here, and that's very, very important. Um, again, another small item that doesn't make the headline in this specific deal is that they won the right to continue striking Mm -hmm. that in this in this deal they said if plants close down we still get to strike in the previous deal they had to give up their right to strike over the lifetime of the contract but this will allow the workers to demand fair treatment and not allow you know the, the the big three to close down a factory that they that they don't like or, or or whatever it may be it gives so much more power to the workers because what we're seeing here is that we really do have the leverage this strike was an act of war like i i i it is a class war all the way and that was the intention of the president for those who are unaware of the the history of this union the, the previous president was basically caught taking bribes uh from the mm. big three automakers and Fain was elected with the uh, with the intent to make them pay for it. And he was going all the way. That's why he was you know, advocating for a four day work week, which unfortunately they didn't do. But, you know, heads up in 2028 and all the other labor unions that are probably going to be fighting for it now. Now that the president has been set, um, you know, it, it, it's very important. It's, it's very important that we retain our rights as workers and realize the leverage that we have over these companies, because it's way more than you think it is sitting there listening to your boss talk shit. Um, you have way more power if you just get together with your coworkers and organize. Um, and even beyond unions, talk about your wages, talk about the treatment that you're receiving from management, talk about how you can work together 
to you know negotiate things with your management. I've done this. I don't work in a union place, but I talk to my coworkers about things that we can get done if we collectively get together and ask for it. It's something that everyone can be doing right now. And you know, if you want a hundred and fifty percent wage increase, like the uh, some of the auto workers just got, that's one way to do it, people. So one thing that I thought was interesting. Um... Obviously, we've seen a ton of huge unionization efforts at really major companies, um, and a lot of these battles are being won. Um, and I was looking it up, and there's this paradox where unions have right now near record popularity, but record low participation. The amount of unionized jobs is growing, but not as quickly as the amount of like non-unionized jobs, um, which I thought was interesting because I, I feel like so much of it is like companies are able to get away with these like union busting efforts even when they're illegal. Uh, like my girlfriend was fired uh, from Boba Guys. I don't know if you've heard of it in California uh, for trying to unionize. And again, like that just, they just got away with it. Like they, they just wrote like some excuse or something and, and were able to do that. Um, and I, I think there, there are people there that are still working on unionization, but the barriers in the United States are so insane of like having to convince like half of the people that you work with um, to start a union when a lot of the times these people know that they're risking their jobs. Um, and because of all these efforts, like you have to do so much organizing, like outside of work. Um, anyway, it, it's just like crazy to me, the amount of restrictions that are put on people that are trying to organize. Um, and going on strike isn't an easy thing to do either. I, I can't speak for other sectors of unions, but at least what, you know, with the newspaper guild, it's not like you just decide to go on strike and you do it. It's this huge process and it goes all the way to a national level. And so I think we, CJ, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's like, I think we also have to start with just educating people on how a union works and how it benefits you. And there needs to be more conversation about that just in all spaces, because I think part of the problem is you have so much fear um, from people who are like, how am I going to support my family if, if we're on a picket line? And, and you have to understand and, and legitimize that. And I think when we attack people out the gate that don't, don't side with the union that are workers right away, and we're not meeting them where, the, where they are, we're not going to be able to bring them over when we start vilifying um, people that are basically crossing a picket line and going to work. A lot of that is so fear-based. And over time, um, you can pull people over to your side, but it takes a lot of education. And these restrictions are put in place, obviously, for a reason, right? Because they they know unions work. They know that or they wouldn't be so afraid of us doing it. And so I think, you know, and I'm so sorry about what happened to your friend, but honestly, kudos to, to them for doing this and taking a stand because the only way um, we we get better, you know, collective benefits is by people basically standing up and falling down and standing up again, you know? 